everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapiro and with me... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Want to come along with me on a robbery? I have no idea. Bandette. Bend- oh! <laughs> I'm so ashamed. I thought Gambit because you did the accent oh. thing. Mm. I- I'm so ashamed right now. I'm sorry. Anyway, yeah, Gambit would have been something more like... Ma petit. <laughs> come on, Sherry. <laughs> It would, anyway, been, it would have been inappropriate. Anyway, this podcast, this comic book podcast, is brought to you by the fine folks at Seaquart, the best online and on-your-shelf resource for all the news, reviews, and previews of comic books and comic book-related media. For example, Zaki Hassan is currently doing a series of retro reviews on past Fantastic Four movies, which is relevant for reasons we'll mention shortly. And you should buy their books, you should watch their movies, read their articles, and support them on Patreon. That's right, we do the heavy thinking so you don't have to. Anyway, you might notice, dear listeners, as we reel into the news, that I'm a bit weak-sounding, <laughs> and there's a reason for that, and the reason is our first news item, the new Fantastic Four movie came out, Yes. and I watched it in a press screening. I just want to say, it is rare for the Smorgasbord to have a world exclusive, but <laughs> we do, because in addition to being the co-host of this podcast... Tom, you are also co-host of a movie review podcast in, in Hebrew, Hebrew yeah. called Second Row in the Middle. Yes. So you have actually approached this critically, right, as a film critic. Well, I started approaching it critically, and then I watched it. <laughs> and then... So tell me. I want. In fact, okay. I am so invested in what you have to say that I am going to quote Transmetropolitan. Tell us of your hate for Fox, Mr. Shapiro. It's and not... tell us of your hate it's for not... Josh Trank. <laughs> I pity Josh Trank because this man's career after that is ruined. What happened? And it's it's a misconceived movie because he tries to do the Fantastic Four seriously and grimly and scientifically. And I understand why they wanted to do that because the other two movies, the Team Story movies, they were bad, but they were Fantastic Four-y. They were very mm-hmm. comic booky and bright and, you know, colors and such. So they said, well, these failed. Let's try a different approach. The thing is, they chose the David Cronenberg approach, where they're all hideous, scary <laughs> monsters, and they even failed with that. Uh, my, my friend and I, my friend who reviews movies with me, when we went out of that, we said, okay, the movie we're going to compare it to, because the concept of Second Row in the Middle is we choose a modern movie and then an older movie comparable to it, we both agreed straight ahead on the fly, which oh, is not boy. a good comparison point for any Fantastic mm-hmm. Four movie. No. And anyway, it's 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 bad and it's boring and all the actors, all of them are good actors. You have Kate Mara, you have Michael B. Jordan, are wasted and slumming it at the same time. Wow. And the action is just a. There's almost no action, and b. When it is, it's so just like yeah, let's get it over with. We should have an action scene, people punching stuff. And the worst of it all, all of it is an origin story. You don't actually have anything resembling the Fantastic oh. Four up until the last minute of the movie. No code names because that would be silly. No team right. name because that would be silly. And Doom, I'm take it, was not. No, you know, do, do, I I think Doom was the best part of it simply because towards the end there were a few cool scenes with him doing awful stuff with his powers, but that's it. There there was just nothing there. Mm. It's just misconceived and badly badly done, and it it's getting slaughtered right now on all the review sites. Right. The Rotten Tomatoes. It's not a metaphor. It's actually people throwing rotten tomatoes <laughs> at the movie, and it's justified. I have nothing to add. It, you know, dozens of professional reviewers haven't added before. It's a terrible movie. It's interesting because 
this was on the one hand a situation where you could have said there was so much negativity surrounding this film prior to its release mm-hmm. right every time there was some kind of news announcement related to fantastic four you it could have sounded like you were setting people on fire it sounded that bad and yet there was this constant idea of you know we have encountered certain movies that had negative word of mouth and turned out to be good and man being the comparable yeah. situation i think where also there was a lot of questionable Pre-production Rumors. troubles. And yet, you know, if you had to compare Fantastic Four and Ant-Man, which would you prefer to see again? Ant-Man. Right. So, but this really was a situation where I don't think anyone was... I, I Like, I don't see how anyone could have been disappointed based on your existing expectations. Like, there's no way that this could have turned out well for anyone. Yeah, I, I came with lowered expectations, and I didn't even reach them. Wow. So, yeah, it's bad, and I pity everyone involved. You know, there, Especially there, since they're coming back there for was a no, <laughs> the, the, I doubt. It's one of those things they announced. It's like the Green Lantern movie. Everybody talked about, oh, there's going to be a sequel, and then it bombed, and no sequel. Yeah, I think they're going to quietly bury this. And now, speaking of Green Lantern, mm-hmm. uh, the actor involved, one Wine Reynolds, is in another comic book movie. Yes. He's number 587, I think. And this one actually has odds of being good... Uh, the Deadpool trailer came out. Both the trailer for the trailer, which was a comedy piece, and, and the funny, yes, and the actual trailer. Academy Award viewer <laughs> Ryan Reynolds. Yes, it's 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 very amusing, fun action action looking movie, yeah. and which, to be completely honest, I think in terms of execution, that is what Deadpool needs to be. Yes, I think that. In this particular case, it certainly seems... I mean, everything that Reynolds has been talking about, and we mentioned this in previous episodes also, seems to be in line with, you know, Deadpool as comic relief. And in that's that's really all it needs to be. It doesn't need any kind of, like, pathos or darkness. Yeah. It doesn't need and any Hopefully it's going to be short. One and a, one, 90 minutes of Deadpool is pretty much what I can take. On a straight face. I feel like they could stretch it to two hours because there does seem to be a subplot there that doesn't involve him. It's like, because you have Colossus in this film, you have uh, Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Negasonic Teenage Warhead, that's a great name. Graham Morrison is probably like, hmm, interesting choice. Well, he stole the name. It's from a, it's a Monster Magnet song. Well, there you go. Yeah. It could go in, in some interesting directions. And I think based on the trailer, this was a situation where... You remember when we saw the trailer to Fantastic Four, we were like, did they accidentally jump into Batman versus Superman because, mm. like, the ruins and everything? And here it's like, it's basically Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool cracking jokes, poking fun at Green Lantern, which is what the trailer did. And on top of that, there's a scene where... I don't know who said this or, or where this came from, but it's like... From the makers of, the, from the studio that brought you the people who decided to shut his mouth the last time, and so it shut or, or whatever. This seems to be a movie that's very much aware that it is a corrective, right? That it is coming to fix the problems with the previous version of Deadpool, who was also Ryan Reynolds. Yes. So he has something to prove with this movie. Fox has something to prove with this movie, and I think that they're more invested in making this work than Fantastic Four because at some point. You just get the feeling that they gave up on Fantastic. Yeah, it it was made to keep the to keep the rights. Yeah, and quite frankly, I doubt that there is anyone happier at this movie failing than Marvel right now. They're probably sitting there, like, yes, soon. Uh, However, if we are going to talk about Marvel, well, here yeah. we go. Yes. So I, 
I feel like we need to have a regular corner on this show called Oh Marvel. Or possibly Goddammit Marvel. Like, there was this episode of The Office where it's casual day. Have you ever seen that? No. Okay, so Meredith shows up wearing this really short purple skirt. And every time she moves to adjust it, she flashes some other part of her anatomy. And that's a really great metaphor for Marvel. Because every time they do something, they end up mooning innocent people. I want to start with two news items from Marvel that are connected, and I'll explain how they're connected at the end of it. Well, let's start with the fact that Marvel want you to know that Hercules is straight. Much like the microphone we're using to record this session, Hercules only works one way. Now, this whole thing started on comic book resources. Axel Alonso, editor-in-chief of Marvel, has this regular column where he basically plays the monorail guy, because that's the kind of site that CBR is. And the question came up, you know, they announced that Dan Abnett would be writing a new Hercules series. And obviously the question came up as to, would Hercules bisexuality come into play? Because in the Greg Puck, Fred Van Lente run five, six years ago, Mm -hmm. it wasn't shown on page, but there was heavy hinting and wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And yeah, he he was bisexual. Greg Pak seems to have approached the character in different variations, because this happened both in... Fall of an Avenger, right? And yes. he was temporarily killed off, or I don't even know what was going on over there. But they sort of intimated in a very clear way that Hercules behind all these grieving women and North Star. And there were a lot of jokes during the run proper about him being a mythic hero. And he sure. had, and they said... You know, wanting to wrestle naked with uh, characters from Avengers Academy or whatever. Yes. Okay. And then you had Extreme X-Men, which I think was a little more overt in the sense that the version of Hercules that was shown there was Wolverine's lover. Yes. That's so that it, was and alternate character, but still... Now, to play devil's advocate, mm-hmm. and very relentlessly so, but otherwise we wouldn't have a discussion, I f- when Axel Alonso talked about Hercules being straight, he was just talking about that other universe, Hercules, which makes me think that he simply did not remember that detail from the Greg Puck run. Here's, I am willing to stipulate that up to a point, because okay. here's the problem. It was clear from Alonzo's response that he was referring specifically to Extreme X-Men, yes. right? He was saying the version that everyone talks about, right, because Greg Pak had this whole flashback where they're in the Savage Land and, you know, Hercules is, like, grabbing Wolverine's leg. or Like, they were very explicit, and it was also kind of hilarious because they were doing the Conan thing. You know how Conan has these uh, moments where sword he's standing, in the sword in the air with, like, a woman. woman to the leg. So the woman was Wolverine in this okay. case. And that was brilliant. Like, that was uh, something that was new. Extreme X-Men was a terrible series. But that was, like, something interesting. Now, the problem with this argument is that, first of all, as editor-in-chief, Axel Alonso needs to know these things. Greg Pak was clearly working on the assumption that even if you couldn't just come out and, like, say it, he could at least imply that Hercules was bisexual. And, in fact, the series where, like, the the funeral scene, right, where North Star turns out to have been involved with Hercules at some point, that was also when Alonso was editor-in-chief, right? It's not some project that happened and he wasn't aware of it. He would have had to greenlight it. Mm-hmm. Now, either that means that Greg Pak was working so far under the radar that nobody really cared what he was doing, or there was some kind of mix-up or whatever. The problem here, though, with playing devil's advocate is that while I'm willing to stipulate that maybe Alonzo wasn't aware of what was going on, he certainly found out about it because the backlash was immediate, right? He said, 
essentially that was an alternate universe and this Hercules is straight. And, and I, obviously the response was, but he's not. Even on CBR, and that's that's basically mm-hmm. a publicity site, if you can screw up an interview on CBR, you're doing it. Bad. Right. Bad they, job. As, as mu- I mean, they, this is a website that gives Alonzo a space to shill for Marvel. And they were the ones who posted the, the Pack and Venlente panel, right? Which is basically saying, no, you are wrong. Okay, I will admit that maybe tipping the hat too much to Pack and Venlente isn't a good idea because that scene even then it's, is a gag. Yeah, but even then, the correct answer, if you didn't want to answer the question like that, would have been, well, I leave this up to the writer, or he's the series is not going to touch about the right. uh, about her relationship. It's going to be an all action adventure thing. Significant Which, here is the fact that Dan Abnett never commented on this. Nobody asked him, and he didn't answer. So. Wait, well, D- Dan Abnett doesn't have a problem with that. He wrote gay characters in the past. Guardians mm-hmm. of the Galaxy was one of the. I think the only lesbian couple at Marvel at the time, with yes. Moondragon and uh, Philavel. Yeah, mm-hmm. Moondragon. So Dan Abbott doesn't have a problem with it. It's not like Dan Abbott, I'm not writing these things. Right. It's not an issue and for him. But the fact that, I think the reason that it kept going back to Alonzo, and of course Tom Brever got involved, and of course Dan Slott got involved. We'll, we'll get well, to them, uh, I promise. Must but, we? Oh, we must. Because this, I think, is a very apt demonstration albeit on a smaller scale, of the concerns that people had when Bendis outed Iceman. This is exactly what they were worried about. The idea that, oh, it's an alternate reality, so it doesn't have to count. So we don't really need to do, you know, like, easy come, easy go. You don't have to make a big deal of it. As, but the editor-in-chief is the one who can say, no, this character is straight. It's ridiculous. And... The reason that it's a cause for concern is because, you know, when, when Pac did it, it wasn't a sales stunt, right? It was written in an issue at which point Hercules was already dead. They weren't trying to launch anything. It was towards the end of yeah, the series. It, nobody cared, right? So, okay, fine. So he's bisexual. Big deal. It didn't count as a sales point. Iceman was a, was a sales stunt. So that is, like, perceived as being not reversible. It's ridiculous. And it shows, I think, how much of a facade... Marvel really is putting up these days because they want the credit for being progressive and inclusive, but they're not willing to follow through unless it's something that they can use. They can't even argue anymore that it's not organic or that, you know, there's no reason to do it because Constantine the Hellblazer is selling pretty well with the bisexual lead. Batwoman did well for 40 issues. I mean, DC is doing more. It's It's rare to say that DC is beating Marvel at anything. Not in the cinema, not in the comic sales, and yet, here we are. And we here at the Smorgasbord, I think when we look at previews, for example, we don't look for what isn't there. We usually comment on the stuff that's presented to us, but it has, in the wake of this whole discussion, it has come to light that post-Secret Wars, Marvel have no LGBT protagonists. They don't have, I think, any African-American writers at all. In a solo books, they have... Right. For Al Ewing alone, you have ten books full yeah, of. Uh, I think like Al Ewing is one of the few writers who who makes it a point to use. He makes uh, it a point, characters. and he makes an effort to show it. Because I remember when they were launching Loki: Agent of Asgard, there was all this talk about how Loki was bisexual. The Mighty went, Avengers, right? You know, so you, and now the Ultimates and Contest. So of he Champions. does make an effort. 
But then, you know, so that's one kind of writer that Marvel has. The other kind is Dan Slott, who had to get involved in all this because Uatu forbid that someone have a disagreement with Marvel and he will not stop by to give his unwanted opinion. You know, with him, it's really like, hear ye, hear ye. I know nothing about the struggles of minorities, but well, Teddy Roosevelt. Well, it was a Twitter war, which always brings me back to my point about... Yeah. But it did... No, but this did not start on Twitter. This started in a, like... CBR no, no. gave Alonzo the rope no, to but hang then, But then Dan Slott intervened on the Twitter. Of course. Just but, because he's not good at it doesn't mean he's not going to do it. And, but it did bring to my Twitter illiterate mind, and you discovered that there is such a thing called Twitlong, which is mm-hmm. which is a Twitter without the character problem, so that means it's, it's a blog. At which point, why, you why, might why, as well just go on Facebook. Why would you, you might go, as it's well. Not, it's, not, it's a blog! So there, the whole point of Twitter is using 140 characters or less, and then you have the thing which is, it's Twitter without that. Decompression. It's like haiku. It's decompression. No, it's like, okay, you have to do an haiku. It could be any length of, of words and syllables. That's not the point of haiku. <laughs> I think the, the larger problem, okay. when you look at like this whole, how this all shook out, right? It's the same conversation. Like, you could practically set it to a watch now. Marvel, by which I mean it's usually Alonzo Brevert or Slot or sometimes Steven Wacker. Like, those are the four people who are always stepping in it. They screw up. They get called out. They ridicule the people who are calling them out. And it turns into this whole spin cycle of talking points and counterpoints. And they end up apologizing. They end up either apologizing or making some kind of token gesture. And then it starts all over again. Like, the... They're not learning from their mistakes. And this goes back to what I have always said, which is that if you want to see real change, these are the people that have to go, right? Because Axel Alonso, and I'm not saying this as a, as a criticism of him, except in the most broad way, belongs to a certain generation of comic book writers, comic book readers, comic book editors, what have you, who doesn't get it. He just doesn't get I, it. He no, does no, not no, no, understand no, no, no. why people are upset. I, I disagree that he has to go. I think new people should come in. It's not a zero-sum right. game. No, he, he has to vacate the position of editor-in-chief in... No. Yes, because this is exactly the problem. If... Okay. Wildly optimistic scenario, right? If the editor-in-chief here had been Sana Aminat, you would not have had this conversation. Because she is someone who has demonstrated an understanding of, you know, you can have all of the things that we already have... And you can have some other things, too. It's okay. Like, these things can all coexist together. And Alonzo seems to be like, if you are complaining about something, you don't get it. Right? And he and he has done this so many times. This is why I'm saying, like, we need to have a pet. We need to have, like, a corner and maybe, like, a little jingle that starts it off. Like, oh, Marvel. Because... I'm not editing in a jingle, Constantly. Sean. Just constantly. Constantly screwing up in the same ways over and over again, and they never learn, and, you know, any gesture that they make is fake, it's a sales stunt, right, it's Bendis on Iceman, which, in fact, I don't know who did this, but Axel Alonso retweeted it, which just, you know, then he deleted the retweet, Twitter, right? Someone took the page from Bendis, uh, the conversation, and basically put Hercules there and had Jean Grey go, you know, you're straight. What's happening here? You're straight. Okay, so the other Marvel news... Right, so that these things are connected. I'll, yeah, I'll okay. show how. So this was the first part, right? The second part was that during a podcast interview last week, Robbie Rodriguez, who's the co-creator of Spider-Gwen, let slip that there's a rule in place where he and Latour 
can't create new characters because of the movie rights. They would default to Sony. His quote was, Whatever we create in Spider-Gwen, Sony has first crack at those characters. So that's why we start doing what we call sampling. We'll sample ideas that we have and slap them onto a new character. Say we have Luke Cage, which I think we're planning on using. It has to be Luke Cage in name only. He's a new idea we had for a new character. So they just apply it to an old character, which, because Spider-Gwen is alternate reality, they can do that. Which explains the Matt murder doc. Right. Now, if you're listening to this and you have a sudden flush of deja vu, it's probably because you may remember that a similar story turned up a few months back with regards to the X-Men. I think it was Chris Claremont who brought that up at some panel or other. Now, here's the thing. A few hours after this news, you know, made the rounds and everyone heard about it, Rodriguez officially retracted. He said, there's no rule. I misunderstood. I'm wrong. We were always at war with Isaiah. Exactly. It was explained to him. And the podcast was edited to cut that segment out. Forgive me for being explicit. But here's how these two intersect. Marvel, we are not fucking stupid. There goes our PG-13 rating. There goes the PG-13 rating, and I'm really sorry, but this is a point that needs to be expressed. Marvel seemed to have the, the opinion that they have, like, the powers of Mephisto in Brand New Day. They can just rewrite reality and we'll all forget, and we'll all, you know, just accept whatever version that they decide to give us. Like you said, you know, George Orwell. Like, if they dictate something, we will just accept that that's the truth. It shows the level of contempt for our intelligence that, frankly, I find offensive. Because he said this thing. He basically confirmed what we already knew. Like, this is not news to anybody that Marvel are in active dispute with Fox and Sony to get back rights to popular characters. We knew this. It's not new. There were even discussions about, you know, maybe keeping Emma Stone so that she can come back as Spider-Gwen, and maybe that had some part to play in, in why the series was greenlighted in the first place. I don't know. That's a level of tin hattery and, that I don't want anyway, to get into. But I don't understand why they removed this, because... Because they think we're dumb. No, but the thing itself, everybody, when it came out, were like, oh my god, it's, is it true? And I'm, well... Why is that a... It's nothing new. Marvel has been always doing... You remember why She-Hulk was created in the first right. place. Because Stan Lee was afraid that he, if he didn't create a character called She-Hulk in the comic, they would do it in the TV show and then they would have the rights for a female Hulk. Right. That's the only reason. Marvel was always, always there for yes. the property rights. The difference now, I think, is the transparency. It's that now everyone knows. Like, it's in everyone's business. And the reason that people are acting so shocked now is because when Chris Claremont mentioned it at the time, that there was this rule in X-Men, even critics who are, you know, well-respected and very... I mean, Paul O'Brien was saying there's a problem with this logic because writers like Bendis are creating new characters. all the damn time. So it's not exactly true. And yet here, Robbie Rodriguez was very straightforward, right? He wasn't even trying to hide it. He just said, there's this rule, this is what we do to get around it. And which is which is fine. Characters for Marvel and DC always work under rules. You know, you can't use all the characters you want, you always have to bend over for the next crossover. It's nothing new. Everybody who reads comics, Marvel comics for more than two years straight, understand these things, learns them quickly. Why would it's like the Hercules thing. Why would you try to hide why would you even do that? Why announce that Hercules is straight? 
you, you, exactly. you get no points for it. Why try to erase something which is on the internet, which they should know is impossible? You get no points for it. Right. They and, basically, and to astonish, they basically said, had you said that Hercules was bisexual, that would have at least been a selling point. Because Hercules is not an A-lister. Never has been. The, the maximum that he was doing was when Greg Pak brought him in specifically as a substitute for the Hulk. Which was when he was bisexual. So, I mean, there you go. Yeah. Anyway, uh, my, my opposition here isn't to the fact that they, that he said this. Like, the rule itself is not a surprise. What surprises me is really Marvel's contempt for their readers' intelligence. That they think we're stupid enough shall we, shall to we, forget. Shall we end the man behaving badly with someone from outside of Marvel? Yes. Tonight, the role of Mr. Dark will be played by Bill Willingham. That was just strange. Uh, Bill Willingham was on a panel. Uh, Gen Con. Yeah, called Writing for Women. It was called Writing Women Friendly Comics. Yes, sorry. Not a good name, in my opinion, but there whatever. There was no hyphen there, so it could and Are you writing women who are friendly to comics? <laughs> are you writing women friendly comedians? What's going on here? <laughs> anyway, somebody, I think it was the Mary Sue, uh, noticed that for this panel, originally there were no women in the panel, which is a thing that happens in a worrying amount, mm-hmm. in a truly not painful, the first time it's yeah, truly painful amount. So then they said it, and there was a bit of a kafafel mm-hmm. online, as usually happens. And two females, two women were included on the panel: uh, Elena Pete and Delilah Dawson. Yes. And then Bill Willingham made his. This favor for this idea known oh before the panel and then during the panel. Yeah. Apparently talking over them, uh, shutting them down, making all sorts of unkindly comments. To be clear, he was supposed to be serving as moderator for yes. the panel. The actual speakers, in addition to Alina Pete and Delilah Dawson, were Gene Ha, Chris Robertson, and Jin Zub. All of whom I have to say, at least in terms of how they expressed themselves afterwards, were pretty grateful for the addition. Yeah, and James Up said, "I when when I was invited, I didn't know there were I didn't ask who were the other people in there. He, I assumed Gene Ha was, I think, very. Specific. He said he would have been horrified if he had shown up to a women-friendly comics panel with no women on. He, he, like they did not. Comic traders should learn to ask these things right <laughs> now. It's like, well, you're invited to talk about women in comics. Are there actually women in this talk? I think that they they didn't know like what was going to happen to, until it actually happened. Willingham, though, well, I'm not super surprised because Bill Willingham is a very socially politically conservative type. You can see it okay. in his blogging, you can see it in his speeches, you can see it in his writing. But it didn't stop him until now. And I was in one of his lectures when he came to Israel to be a very presentable, very nice person, you know, he, he never bouldered over anyone as far as I know, and he kept his political opinions to his writings rather to his talking points. This one was just him going all out for I don't know what reason. He called the Mary Sue, quote, a website of questionable journalistic integrity. Setting aside the credentials of the Mary Sue, because I'm, I admit that I don't read them. I don't know exactly what it is that they have going for them. But to echo, when you are echoing sentiments most commonly expressed by Gamergate, that's a sign to stop. Like, that's where you, I mean, I wish I had, you know, you don't watch Game of Thrones. No. So I, but I wish I had that bell. It's like, you know, ding, 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 shame. Ding, 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 shame. 
Shame. There was nothing to add. He was just... He was bad, playing bad Eric Cartman. Bad show all around, Bill Willingham. Thoroughly really. un- unprofessional, and I mean, it's not even... You know what? I'll, I'll take this a step further. It's not even that I necessarily agree with the points that were made at the actual panel, because Jim Zub, for example, said that he had been offered a book with a black female protagonist, and he said, "I would it would be more appropriate if this book were written by a black female writer. That is a, that is a mindset that can lead to quality writing. It can also lead to Reginald Hudlin on Black Panther. Yes. Like, that kind of correlation is good, but is not a guarantee of anything, right? Matching characters to ethnicities, in terms of giving more voices to people who do not have voices in the industry, great idea. But that doesn't mean that Jim Zub shouldn't write it. Yes. Right? So... In well, an ideal, Jim Zub is writing wayward now, right, right now about the Japanese protagonist. In an so. ideal industry, like if the industry were working properly, you wouldn't need that kind of characterization in the first place because you know black writers can. Yeah, write but black we're not an ideal. We're, we're not ideal. Real okay, what I don't understand about this whole story, though, was I mean, Willingham was acting so put out. Now I know he's turning into John Byrne. I can see it very clearly. But the problem is, you're it's 2015. People are using social media. In the room where you are in, you honestly don't think that your behavior is going to make the rounds? I mean, you cannot stick your fingers in your ears without looking like a complete moron. This is what he tried to do, the Vancom lady from Mad TV. You know, la, 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 with his fingers in his ears. You look like an idiot. And I understand that at a certain age, you don't understand how... You know, your outward image can affect your sales, but my God, you could not, he could not have been more of a stereotype. And I am so sick of comic book creators and to a very large extent comic book readers perpetuating stereotypes that really, you know, shine a negative light on all of us. Just, he should have just sat down, shut up and kept time. That is what a moderator is supposed well, to do. Well, there are some people whose stupidity does not surprise us, like Fox News. <laughs> I'm sorry, you say Fox News and I just break out laughing. Anyway, Fox News had an article and a discussion going on after a recent Superman run by uh, Jean Lang Young. Mm-hmm. Currently so, running. Yeah, currently running. Run. Yeah, uh, the recent issues. Yes. Which is originally titled, Superman Literally Bashes Police. In new comic, <laughs> then retracted and reposted that Superman fights the police in a new comic, paralleling the Ferguson riots. Oh, God. With, oh, God. And the subject was how Fox News is very, very angry that Superman fights cops in the story arc in which the police are invading his old neighborhood in Metropolis, fearing wrongly. The comic made it clear that they wrongly feared there was a kryptonite plague or something coming out. I haven't read it because... Twix, right? Oh. Because we're angry about Twix commercials. Well, the Twix commercials are over, aren't they? I'm waiting for the trade. Oh, okay. okay. No, that's re- legitimate. Yeah, that I'm not reading it issue well. by issue. Sorry. Okay. We both really waited for these for these runs, mm-hmm. for the Jin Lang Yan run, but no. Right. I will say that I went back when, when it turned yeah. out that in July there were no Twix. Mm-hmm. I went back and read some of the first issues. So, you know. Friends of mine really liked it, right? Yes. Anyway, okay. it was such a stupid point because... And they treated it like, oh my god, superhero fights the police. Where are we coming to? 
see Batman the entire career <laughs> of 1939 to 2010, The Dark Knight. Oh, that's not fair. No, 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 The Dark Knight, one of the most successful movies in the last 10 years, nearly ended with Batman beating up an entire SWAT team. But Batman doesn't wear the flag. I think, like, that's the sort of thing you can expect from Batman. Their problem specifically was that it was Superman. Now, truth, justice, okay. and the American Okay, in way. which case, I would recommend them to read Action Comics number one. It's nice that you assume they can read. <laughs> From 1938. Not, not the recent, you know, evil British Grant Morrison writing the pure American, you know, <laughs> Superman. Action Comics number one, in which he tortures a senator. Uh, holds him above, you know, power lines like, surrender your corrupt ways or I will throw you down. Mm-hmm. Breaks into the governor's mansion and breaks down his steel door because executioning people is wrong. Superman? The original if Superman? Fox News knew that Superman was against the death penalty. Woo! Superman started as a political activist of the New Deal type. You know, compared to that Superman, this one is like... Well, I'm biting the police because they're doing bad things and they're bad in this particular story. It's not super, it's not something super radical. It's, you know what it is with Fox. You know, and wait, 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 even, even, even recently, Superman was fighting, uh, the Metropolis authorities in Hood Music Run, if I remember correctly, because they had the Superman squad tasked to capture him. Mm -hmm. So again, it's nothing new. They were just, well, Ferguson, we can make a story out of it appealing That's to our, it appealing to our you know conservative viewers. They have like this wheel and they spin it like what pop culture are we going to connect to our twisted uh. political views today? And then it just landed on Superman. And I mean, these are not people who understand anything about Superman. They don't know anything about. It. They don't read him. They don't get him. They think he is basically what they want him to be. Yeah. And well, you're wrong. Live with it. Now, we don't usually talk about cancellations on the smorgasbord, because usually the books that we like get canceled. (laughs) That's usually how it goes, right? It's like, damn it. But um, I I did want to bring this up as sort of a point of interest, because it is unusual, even in the context of books we like always getting axed. So, Pisces, by Kurt uh, Kurt J. Weeby, who we have reviewed. We reviewed the first issue. We weren't thrilled for it. but Canceled after three issues. Now, I'm not surprised, because... We mentioned at the time there was a huge problem with this book, which was that the previous text did not match the content in any way. Yeah, and the content wasn't that interesting in its own right. right. But It was know, clearly building towards something, but as late as... I mean, I went back for issue two just to see, and it was the same... There had been no movement. It mm. was the exact same thing. But the still, problem is that Image have been having sort of growing pains with these books. Umbral, it turns out, was also... They call it indefinite hiatus, but in practical effects, it's cancelled. I think next Nick Spencer's Bedlam is also cancelled. I believe it is. Peter Panzerfaust... Uh, no, Peter Panzerfaust ran its course. No, there were two issues that haven't been published yet, 24 and 25, and the reason I know this is because mm. I went and reread it, and now I really like it, and now the last two issues haven't come out yet, and I'm really mad about That's it. That's strange. And... Apparently, they will be, like, they, they exist and on the Diamond four, Shipping List as course, TBD. And, of course, the red one, which the red one. two issues came out, and then yeah, they've been collected. They've collected the first two issues. Right. Who, do, who does I, that? I understand, like, okay, with the best will in the world, right, I understand that Image is taking more risks and gambling more than other companies. And sometimes those risks don't pan out. And that's fine. I'm really okay with that. 
I just wish they had a clearer mechanism for letting people know what's going on. Because I can imagine, you know, someone who was reading Pisces finds out it's canceled after three issues might not be willing to take that chance with a new number one. Right? Like, there's always that moment of you get invested, you put down money, you put down time, and then it's like, not only are we not continuing this, but we're going to stop before you actually get to the point. Yeah. It's not going to be collected, I assume, right? How do you collect? Who even knows? I mean, I assume maybe Image should just go into, like, trades with stuff like this. I don't know. Like, if they had released Pisces as a graphic graphic novel... novel then maybe the problem, like, if if the body horror thing that he was promising actually happens in issue five, to just release the trade. Yeah. I don't know. Casting news? Casting Quickly. news. Quickly. <laughs> so, there was talk a while back that Channing Tatum had left the Gambit solo movie. This turned out to be wishful thinking. I personally have, like, this theory that, like, there was some quantum mechanics going on. It was Schrodinger's Tripper, where, like, Channing Tatum was both in and out of the movie at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now he's back, and the deal has been sealed, and he will be playing Gambit. Okay. Have we not suffered enough? Like, I, I, I feel like... He can be good in no, a good role. No, I, I liked him in uh, those 21 Jump Street movies. Right, but 21 Jump Street isn't... I mean, would you want to see that aesthetic applied to Gambit of all characters? Well, I would, but I'm... Me. Like, Gambit? Really? Are they going to put him in the face, the, the face guard thing? I assume not. My God, I, I don't even... The pink overalls? Ooh. The pink body armor, sorry. Well, he's used to wearing pink. But I don't know. Like, why Channing Tatum? I don't know. Why Gambit? I don't know. Speaking Nothing of... about this makes any sense. And, w- and when they said that he was leaving, my first reaction was like, you don't have to do it. You know, you don't have to do this movie. It's okay. Deadpool makes sense. Gambit, but it, it's going to happen. Speaking and... of cardboards... Yeah. <laughs> That's not fair. This one I really, That's I really rude. don't like him as an actor. I'm sorry. Chris Pine as Sinon as Steve Trevor for the upcoming Wonder Woman movie. Yeah. Apparently, after talks for him playing Hal Jordan in right. in the Green Lantern movie, I get that mm-hmm. because Steve Trevor would theoretically be a better role, and because Wonder Woman movie is actually coming, and the Green Lantern movie is still in wish fulfillment mode. Is it? I thought they were... Well, they were talking, and... It was already a failure. You mm-hmm. don't want to try it again. Right. The Wonder Woman movie is a, is a fresh start. Yeah. There was sort of a, an eyebrow-raising moment where... When DC described the role, they said, you know... He's Wonder Woman's love interest. But don't worry. There's going to be action, too. Like, I don't think anyone was doubting that. It keeps going back to that Saturday Night Live sketch with the Black Widow, where it's like, I don't think you needed to tell us that he's not just the love interest, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't, I don't know. Chris Pine, I liked him in the new start, in the first new start. I track. just didn't like him in that anything. That batch thing, we don't need to talk about that. You know, he's, he's okay as a leading man. I saw him in this movie, Carriers. It's like horror, disease, quarantine thing going on. He he can be good. Like you can get good performances out of him. The role of Steve Trevor, I mean, he's a pretty looking dude. That's kind of the point, yeah, right? Yeah. Like he's Wonder Woman's arm, you know, arm decoration. It's like uh, the recent Ghostbusters movie. They've announced that the role of the secretary will be played by Chris Hemsworth. I demand that Chris Hemsworth say the you know. 
Ghostbusters, what do you want? I demand that this thing happen. Now, that is actually odd, because Janine in the original Ghostbusters movie wasn't an eye candy. She was stern-looking no. lady. But here, the humor might be mm. that... Well, I mean, Annie Potts was a, is a pretty lady, but they were playing in down the movie, the role yeah. as a, like this nerd. And she ends up with Rick Moranis' character in the second movie, so that's a whole thing. And here it's like, okay, eye candy, I'm, I'm all for it, but like, I really want... Chris Hemsworth to be like, you know, we got one! <laughs> and then ring the bell. <laughs> I just, I, like, I'm already laughing. Okay, okay. Um, Speaking of casting news. Your favorite show. Late breaking news. This was actually announced today, or given the time difference, yesterday. So, Kanan Lonsdale, who most recently appeared in Insurgent, which I did not watch because I like myself, and I like the time that I have, has been cast as Wally West for the CW Flash. And they've specified that this is Kid Flash. Unexpected. I did not think that they would be going with Wally West so quickly. But, now that he's here, I say let's go with it. So far, the CW's Flash has not taken a wrong turn. And I realize that by saying that, I'm probably jinxing them to do an entire second season full of love triangles and angst and unnecessary character death. But having said all of that, so far so good. How old is this guy? I think in early 20s. Well, that's not really a younger, kid. Younger than Grant, uh, Grant Gustin, I think. Well, hopefully. Um, yeah. It would be interesting if they would really go for it and they would say towards, I don't know, the end of season three or something, well, Wally West is now the main character. They might actually do that. I mean, here's... Okay, there's a catch here. In the series, Iris does not have siblings. Mm-hmm. My guess is that this version of Wally West is Rachel Summers. You know, future son oh, oh, of Barry. Oh. So, but Bane. but at the same Bane. time, Bane. no, 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 no. Hang on. At the same time, since the beginning of this series, there has been mention of crisis, right? Like uh, in the very, very beginning, you see like this future newspaper article that mentions red skies. They could. This is incredibly, you know, it's a theory. But if you want to take a risk. If you want to do something really unexpected, they could kill Barry off in the third season and then yeah. say Wally West is the Flash. That's a risk. Maybe they'll take it. I look uh, forward to it. Final news item. Yes. That's a manga yes. news item, which is rare for us. According to according to a website called Tracking Board, Avi Arad will produce a Michael Gracie film for Lionsgate, a Western film version of the Japanese manga Naruto. Now, what is Naruto? Naruto... Do you know what Dragon Ball Z is? Yes. I also know that Dragon Ball Z had a Western film adaptation. Yes. Now, go well. Naruto is that with ninjas. It's about a village of ninjas in a ninja-infested world. And there's this one kid who wants to be the greatest ninja of them all, but nobody likes him, and he's a bit of an idiot, and there's this ancient curse thing that he must break. Sounds all right. Generic. Okay. I've watched several episodes of the anime when... I was just getting into anime. It's not very good, okay. in my opinion, but it has billions of fans. It's, it's one of the most popular anime in the West. Hmm. In in Japan, it's I think it's long been overshadowed by One Piece and others. But okay. it's very it's very popular, and you can see in theory why would the, why would they want to do a Western movie for it? But Western adaptations of manga have a track record of failure mm. on par with video game movies. <laughs> now, you've mentioned Dragon Ball Z Evolution, which was terrible. Let us Is not... that what it was called? Yes. Evolution? Devolution, yeah. maybe. 
let us not forget the Speed Racer movie by the Wachowski brothers, which was a financial flop. Oh, no. Uh, the Giver movie, which you don't even remember what was a thing. These things just don't work. How was the Astro Boy movie received? There was an badly. Astro Boy CGI Yeah, yeah, thing, badly, right? badly. Okay. And that was even, yeah, it's not even a live action. They did an animation, which would you, you would have thought would work better, but nobody even, I didn't remember that there was an Astro City movie until you mentioned it. <laughs> See? It was that forgettable. Right. So these things never work in practice, and the audience in the West that likes Naruto likes it because of what it is, not... They don't want to see the bastardized Western version. Right. There was another... Um, I'm remembering now there's another Western adaptation that's coming out with they're Scarlett Johansson. They're talking about doing Ghost in the Shell. Right. That's, which is... It's a terrible idea because the, the Ghost in the Shell movie... And they're talking about adapting the movie, not the manga, which is... Okay. In this case, the movie is better known and better received than the manga that inspired it. So this uh, would be an adaptation of an the, adaptation. Yeah, but okay. anyway... The movie is near perfect, as far as I'm concerned. There is no, there is nothing there to improve. Mm -hmm. Definitely by doing it in live action and throwing in Scarlet Johansson, which is... Oh my god! So you're basically describing the process of turning Avatar The Last Airbender into the Avatar yes. channel. No, yes. no! Yes. No! No! But, you know, why doesn't Hollywood ever learn from its mistakes? I mean... Go ask M. Night Shyamalan how that worked out for him. His daughter probably did not talk to him for a year afterwards. You, you, you've heard that story, right? No. When he... His daughter was a huge fan of Avatar The Last Airbender. Yes. That was what got him to want to create a live-action adaptation. The problem was, her favorite character was Katara, right? Inuit woman. Um, waterbender. He cast this little white girl... Nicole Perez. Who was so bad... It just, it just like completely demolished the character of Katara. And I, like, I'm trying to imagine family dinners at the Shyamalan house after that. She must have been looking at him like, you bastard. <laughs> but, and now they're doing this with, with Naruto. And, you know, Avi Arad is not dumb. I mean, he was behind the first Spider-Man movies. Yes. He should know better by now. Well, I mean, you know, there's well, like common he sense here. If he was beyond the first Spider-Man movies, he was also beyond Spider-Man Free, Venom, oh. Peter Parker dancing. Well, there you go. Oh, no. Not dumb, but crazy. He was possessed by John Travolta's body fate, is what happened. Okay, so that That's the these news. are the news. And, like, no good news. It's just been, like, you know, one long... I, I, like, I don't even have the words for it. They... They need to stop thinking that we are dumb. Yes, many people who read comic books are dumb, but that doesn't give you the right to assume that all of us are. <laughs> I would really like it if they didn't do that. So with that in mind... Shall we move, move on, on to actual reviews? The reviews. What shall we start with? Let's start with John Flood number one. John Flood number one. This is a six-issue miniseries from Boom. By Justin Jordan, art by George Coelho. Justin Jordan, the writer behind the wildly successful uh, Luther Strode series of miniseries. And I think the last time we read a Justin Jordan book, I don't think either of us were particularly impressed as being spread. Uh, well, we, we haven't reviewed it. We didn't yet. review it, but we... Yeah, I've read the read first it. two issues, and yeah. I'm like, 
It's Lone Wolf and Cub in the future, but I can just read Lone Wolf and Cub again. Pretty much. Yes. Pretty much. You know, it didn't... Um... Well, and see, because we have a theme here, because this is John Constantine in Los Angeles. <laughs> well, and I get... Okay, okay, the plot... smorgasbord. We believe in second chances, and thirds and fourths, as the case may be. Okay, so the plot here is we have this guy called John Flood, who was, in the past, a subject of a government experiment meant to see if people can survive without sleep. Forever. Which... Worked to a point, because John Flood can now survive without sleep, and it enchanted him in further ways, because the way his mind works, he can make all sorts of strange connections. Because he's in permanent dream state, Yes, basically. which unfortunately made him completely crazy, for, for mm-hmm. their point of view, from the government's right. point of view. Okay. Which means he was, as far as we know for this point of the story, let go, and was like, do your thing, we don't want you anymore. So, as people in these stories do, he found a work as a private eye. Mm-hmm. And the story, we meet him sort of in media rough, finding a new assistant slash bodyguard, which would keep him alive while he's pissing people off with his work. As a premise, interesting. The problem, like, in terms of this issue, you have the first page where John Flood lays everything out, right? Mm-hmm. And then we immediately jump to... The bodyguard, right? We, we, the whole issue ends up being about some guy called Barry who gets recruited to join John Flood in looking for a serial killer who is completely random, right? There's no motive. There's no reason. He's just killing people, and we see a bit of that in the issue. And what John is seeing is a pattern in the lack of a pattern. pattern like yes. he's, he's looking for what isn't there. What were your thoughts on the issue? Well, I think as an issue, it's okay, but... It comes out in unfortunate timing because right now we as a culture have too much of this weird detective thing of the he's a genius but nobody understands him but you sort of have to trust every odd thing that he's... It's a everything post-house, which wasn't a detective show but brought the idea of a detective show to uh, modern medicine stuff, mm-hmm. is, is like this. We have two Holmes adaptation, you know, Elementary and uh, Sherlock which are both post-house shows. We have, in comics, we have uh, Weird Detective, we have Semi-Auto Magic, we have the new Constantine. It's all... It's, well, it's, Constantine's it's, a little different. You know, exactly you, no, 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 but the thing is, you know, Chu is almost a parody on that on these things, and Chu worked because Anthony Chu was a normal guy other than his weird talent, but here it's like the weird ta- the weird talent becomes the thing that defines the character, mm-hmm. and he's all weird and mysterious and a bit funny, but you have to trust him. You have to do everything that he says because he knows stuff, and you can never tell him no. And it's overdone at this point. It's like zombies. Mm-hmm. It's like... It's a very limited genre, which has been done to death in the in recent years. And this comic is not a bad example of the genre. I particularly, I really like the art. I really like the design sense of this. Yeah, but on the it, first page, when you get like that yeah. first look at John, like his eyes are like huge. popping out. Uh, yeah. So you know, George uh, Coelho, mm-hmm. Colejo, I think Coelho. Coelho. He does a fine. He does fine work. And Justin Jordan is not a bad writer. It's just. What's the point? I think what what does you what do you add for me as a reader that I did not read or watch on TV or in the cinema dozen times in the last two years? I think that this is a first issue that errs too much on the side of caution because exactly what you're missing here, right? Like the hook that individualizes this series, presumably is here, but it's not in the first issue. 
And we mentioned this as, you know, Boom really needs to figure out a better way of chopping up graphic novels for monthly consumption. <laughs> because this we were just talking about Power Up having yes. this exact problem, right? The premise sounds really interesting, but the first issue does not actually reveal it. We don't even meet John in his function until halfway through the issue. No, that's... Because the whole thing, like, the, the first half of the issue is... John's assistant recruiting Barry as like the no, bodyguard. No, that's, that's fine. That's that's basically a takeoff on Sherlock Holmes, where we start in the first novel with Watson, and there are like dozens of pages with Watson meeting the friend, and the friend t- saying, "You yeah. have to meet this guy, Sherlock." But Barry isn't interesting. Well, Watson wasn't very interesting originally. Barry's, I think, Barry is a fine character because he's supposed to be the normal anchor. And again, on its own, if you would take this out of the context, the cultural context in which it exists, it's a fine first issue. It's just, right now, it adds nothing. It's... I mean, what popped into mind in terms of a comparison as I was reading this was the first issue of Witch Doctor. Yeah. Because that was a situation where also we meet the protagonist, right? The person who has the unique outside. Look, sorry, we... We meet the person who has the unique outlook from the outside, right? Yeah. We have this character who's introduced, the paramedic in Witch Doctor, who comes in and meets him and has this whole conversation. And through him, you find out, like, the weird stuff. The problem here is that when they announced this book, right, in terms of promotional material, in terms of building up expectations for your readers, the emphasis was placed on, you know, what is what does John see, right? What is the... What does this permanent dream state do to him? You only have one panel in this entire issue where we see things through his eyes mm-hmm. with the weird, you know, permanent dream. And even then, that panel is not particularly informative of his skills. It's not enough in the context of one issue. I have no doubt that if I were reading this as a graphic novel, but right, you get to the end of part one, you turn the page, and it's like, oh, there he is, right? There's the part that's interesting. There's the hook. But Boom is having a lot of difficulty in terms of parsing the these issues. And maybe it's an editorial problem. Maybe it's something that's coming as a result of... Because, you know, these are all miniseries. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, they need to fix it. Because it could be sabotaging books that could have been successful otherwise. Because like I'm reading this issue and it's like, the only reason that I would come back is because it's only six issues. If this were an ongoing, I would have dropped it. There's no, give me the thing that you are selling this book on. You know what I mean? If the whole point of this, if what makes John Flood unique as a detective figure, in light of all the Sherlock Holmes clones, and all, you know, Witch Doctor, and we have all of these parallels, and if you want to stand out, the thing that is meant to have it stand out needs to be in the first issue. Birthright, for example, did this right. Yes. Remember, by the end of the first issue, mm-hmm. you knew where the twist was. G- give us the hook. Exactly. And if you can't do that, then maybe, you know, maybe this should have been a double, uh, double-sized issue. Maybe if you start with 48 pages and give John enough room to develop as a character to the point where you're like, this is the reason you want to keep going. But is he a character? He's just, he's wacky. There's some, I don't, again, like, this is a question that I can't answer based on the first issue. I'm assuming that it's not, Justin you know, Jordan knows. I just, I just realized what it is. It's, it's the worst version, not bad, it's the worst version of the Warren Ellis thing about the private detective in Los Angeles. Desolation, Desolation Jones. Oh. Well, it's, it's the le- less interesting version of Desolation Jones. Except the Desolation Jones 
isn't funny. Well, I thought it was or, funny. Or, no, I mean, Desolation Jones is very much a Warren Ellis character in that they are full to overflowing with venom and, like, the sarcastic, cynical humor. No, but it was ex-government operative who was broken. Desolation Jones was a Warren Ellis character who was broken beyond belief. Right. He wasn't the spouting uh, nonsense tough guy because he was just tired all the time. Sure, but... And John Flood is tired all the time. John Flood is tired all the time, but there is sort of like this quirkiness to him that yes. I feel could make it compelling, but not, you know, not based on the strength of the first issue. Okay, uh, next one, shall we do Dark Corridor? Sure. Okay, uh, Dark Corridor number one from Image, because we have to do something from Image. I mean, if they're, if they are giving us the number ones, we'll okay. read them. Uh, one man project written, drawn, colored, everything by, uh, Rich Tommaso. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I didn't know when I read this issue, it's sort of a one-man anthology where you have one ongoing story and one one-shot. No. According nope. to the letter pages at the end of the issue, it is sort of an anthology, except that all the, the stories are written by Tommaso, and both of the stories in this issue are ongoing. Oh, I thought... That's second, how he describes it. I thought the second one was one-shot. Maybe I was um, wrong. No, well, this is actually a point in the book's favor, because... Before we get into the details, I will say that this could have functioned as a one-shot. Both of the stories that Tommaso presents here are first chapters in an ongoing, but if you read them, they are sufficient in and of themselves that you could stop there. Like, if you were reading an anthology comic, and this was it, mm-hmm. that would be totally okay. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Dark Corridor. Okay, um, the first story is The Red Circle. Yeah. It's about a gangster type called... Pete, right? Mm-hmm. Who finds a dog covered in blood, you know, uh, jumping at his window and barking, and he's trying to figure out what happened to this dog, because apparently he's a dog person, and if somebody abused dogs in my city, I'm going to take vengeance sure. upon them. And I mean, Pete is one of those classic noir archetypes where if he didn't have that redeeming quality, you wouldn't give a damn. Yeah, he was a complete dog. bastard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's trying to find out what happens to the dog, and he stumbles upon a weird crime scene, and then he calls upon his buddies to help him. And strip. it goes from there. Yeah, strip the place. And the second story is Seven Deadly Daughters, which is sort of a take on that urban legend with the cars and the headlights. Okay, it's I don't know that. I don't know that story. If so. you've seen the movie Urban Legends, oh, uh, so you remember there's that one where you know two cars passing each other and one of them like turns on the lights. Uh, and anyway, the, the story itself is about a mafia hitman in a hospital, mm-hmm. nearly dying, and two people coming and demand to know how did he came to this uh, state and what happened to the diamonds he was supposed to transfer for them. Uh, okay. I really, really like this issue. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, A, it's unique looking. Uh, Tommaso has this great personality to his drawings. You know, everybody's sort of a cartoonishly unique character. Mm-hmm. And we've talked before about image. Sometimes they, they don't have a house style, but you can sort of, mm-hmm. sort of, uh, say, okay, this is an image book, this is an image can book. You? For a lot of their books. I, I don't know. I mean, because I'm thinking now, for example, Fiona Staples would be comparable to who in that context? Well, she's writing, right? She's not drawing for them right now. No, Saga. Oh, right, right. I'm sorry. I thought about someone else. Because I'm thinking, like, about... In terms of the... Anyway, what I'm saying, it it looks... No, 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 but it looks... 
non-regular for the U.S. market. It's almost, oh, absolutely. It almost yeah. something that you would see, I don't know, coming from South America or something. Because I've read several Spanish and South American comics in my time, and, and it's sort of more like this. Mm-hmm. The mix between cartoonish of the character faces, but the real body design and the sense of the city. Did it remind you a little bit of Noel Stevenson and the faces? I would just say me? very like much because like the eyes are like little that, dots. The the eyes are were almost like Charlie Brown to me. Like, right, right, like cl- peanuts. <laughs> like <laughs> they're these weird kids only Which grown up and killing so people. Dark. dark. <laughs> That's deliberate. Anyway, so I, I it, it say, looks great, yeah, and the it's story. Always, it's always interesting to read noir comics that aren't being written by Ed Brubaker. That's not. <laughs> a, that's not a knock on Ed Brubaker. He's phenomenal. He's just a one-man genre at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's like noir is so neglected in the mainstream market that whenever somebody else wants to do their own take, I'm like, huh, that looks good. Yeah, and it's not. It's not science fiction either. You know, they talked about this being a fictional coast city controlled by gangsters. So I thought, oh, it's gonna be like. A futuristic crime thing, but no, it's just regular crime story, yeah. which is fine. We need more of these. Absolutely, it's not entirely clear to me. Like the previews seem to suggest that the two stories here are connected by the city, at least. Which right? No, no, no. That they're different parts of the same storyline, mm-hmm. and that Tommaso's uh, afterward, the the letter at the end of the issue suggests that in an ideal scenario, the content will change every year. Yeah. So these two stories are designed to run for at well, least. Well, you've talked about Brubaker. Criminal was. You know, a series of miniseries, mm-hmm. which if you read them separately, you could have said, okay, this is one story about criminals, this is another. But if you read them in order, you could see all the small connections oh, yeah. building up. So I assume this is the same thing. You could see, you can read it as one shots. And I would be very interesting to see how they print this. Uh, when it, there's enough material, would they do the trades as, you know, the red, the, um, the, like cor- the red circle in, its in entirety? One, and yeah. That's an interesting question. Seven. I assume that they would if the stories, because you get two trades for one then. Yes. You end up putting out like six issues or 12 issues or however long these two stories come out. And then out of those issues, you have enough material for two separate books, which may be connected and may not be. Like, it depends on what Tommaso wants to and do. I, I prefer the second story because I really had no idea where, where they were going with it and... Because I didn't know the legend and the right. mysterious, like, an officer's cough and bludgeon. That's a great. <laughs> yeah. It's like, is it a fake name? We don't care. It's caution bludgeon. Get out of our way, please. Absolutely. And the first one really does have sort of this fantastic twist at the end. Um, I, I really liked it. I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward for more. I'm here for the uh, whole uh, I want to see that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Our last number one. Oh, boy. Okay. So this damn band number one. This is by Paul Cornell and Tony Parker from Dark Horse. It's another six-issue miniseries, yes. which is fine. It's great. So a 70s rock band called Mother Father takes a bunch of mushrooms and sees demons. The end. Yes. Let's talk about our trade review. No. <laughs> uh, okay, no. I, uh, it's not... Okay, okay. <laughs> now, we were both really looking looking forward to that because it's yeah. Paul Cornell. We, we like Paul Cornell. We like uh, M- Captain Britain and AMI-13. We like Wisdom. We like... Uh, I didn't like wisdom, but that's me. Shame on you. Uh, I know, but uh, you Night, know what? Night if, of Squire. If you're talking about past Cornell releases, this issue reminded me very, very strongly of the exact same problem I had with the first issue of Demon Knights. Namely, Cornell is not very good at introducing new characters. He's just not. You're sitting in the first issue, and all of these people are parading back and forth, and like, I don't 
Who are you? No, no, I dis- I disagree because he did great work with uh, Faisal Hussein in uh, Captain Britain. She was there in the first issue and she was great from the start. I don't think it's a general problem, but I do think this issue doesn't really work. It takes the form of somebody's doing a documentary about this band which gives them... And it the writer, adds nothing. Yeah, it gives the writer an excuse to have all, everybody talking straight to the camera, which is... It's not an original idea, and it's the not docu- well performed. No, the, the documentary format is meant to... Like, in, in purely technical terms, right? If you're a reader and you're reading a story that's set in a documentary format, the idea is supposed to be that you're paying attention to only what the camera sees. And if whatever the camera is not seeing, you know that it's there, but, like, you don't have access to that. Here, we have access to everything. Like, we... This camera is everywhere. Like, there's never anything that happens that the film crew of the documentary... Misses. That they miss, that they're not, like everything is out on the table, everyone's thoughts, everyone's personality, there's no one that they don't get access to. And they're so, not really interesting. It's exactly what you expect from a parody of a 70s uh, rock band. All like, the excesses, like all the Beatles the, towards the end. Yeah, and they're all obviously, they're all fakes behind. Uh, we're, we're really mysterious in the supernatural. No, we're not. And yeah. there's there's no surprises here. No, they take a bunch of mushrooms, they go on stage, and then they see demons. The end. And we we led to assume by the solicitations that the, it's not an hallucination, the demons are real, but I just, I don't so, care at this point. I don't care about these people. That is exactly it. Yeah. It's like, if this, for this to have worked, I would have needed better differentiation between the different members of the band. Because you have the lead singer, right? Clearly based on some kind of Glam, Velvet Goldmine. Who would you compare him to? That—that's the first comparison yeah. that comes to mind, right? And Velvet Goldmine was based on David Bowie and Lou Reed. No, no, Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop. That's right. the one. So, okay, the the cut, like the artwork, is clearly moving towards that, right? Except, so what? Like that doesn't give you anything. No. Like it's it's not enough to just have these cues, and then you have this other posh one, right, who's going around in a suit and talking weird, and then like some guy is married, but he's also having oral sex with this like this groupie, and they're in Japan, and, and one of the wife is a super spiritual type. Of course she is. You know, there Paul the, Cornell is usually a lot better than this. oh, yo. the best part. Of the issue is the last two pages, which is a fake. This. Oh, the discography of the, the discography band, of right? the, the fake discography of the band. Mother, father. Yeah, that's the best part. You actually get the sense of oh, what type of band they are and what mm. they were playing, and you have these. Although fake... even then, no, it's, it's the Beatles. Well, no, because they're changing stuff, and the fake reviews from Lester Banks' fake review for the fake <laughs> band. Um, here's a band talking and talking and talking, and there are some messages here, and there's some tired ass arguing under all these coats about one in three tracks. You could say something could be done. But mostly, no, go home and argue, go home. That's a perfect review for this. I was going to say that. You took the words out of my mouth. And again, I like Paul Cornell. I think he's a great writer. I just don't get, what's the point? What's, no, he, you know. There are no hooks in this this issue. I immediately went back and reread Demon Knights. And I realized, you know, Demon Knights had the same problem, but because of the premise, you could sort of keep going until issue two and three, and that's when he really starts fleshing out. Also, Demon Knights had dinosaurs. 
It did. Which, if this had dinosaur, dinosaur army, no less. Yes. It's and so, here it's like, you know, generic Satan demon no. thing. Eh, you know, been there, done that. Disappointment. Very disappointing. And not coming back for the rest. No. Like, with John Flood, I'm willing to wait for the trade and, and get the whole thing. This one, not so much. No. Uh, shall we move on to our trade review? Let's move well, on. Well, it's to not the trade. a trade because the trade doesn't come out yet. It's a, we need like an official name. Yeah, Let's, it's like a story the main review. course. Yeah. Here's the main course review. Uh, we're talking about Big Man Plans, a four issue miniseries from Image, brought to you, written and drawn by Eric Powell of the Goon fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story is about a guy who's nicknamed the Big Man because, irony, he's a dwarf. Mm hmm. Who, during the Vietnam War, was serving in the army in a very brutal and special role. And we he should specify at this point that we are not talking about fantasy dwarves. No, no. It's a real... <laughs> you can make that confusion. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's a sort of realistic <laughs> series. You know, it's very well, brutal and over-the-top action yeah. series, but realistic in terms of uh, the world it's describing. It's our world in the 1970s. And he comes back home, apparently, to take vengeance on... Something very terrible that happened to him as a child. So half of this is his story in the modern day, and the other half is flashbacks to his very horrible childhood. It's an interesting series. I'm not... The first issue is a very dark, brutal comedy, which is a thing you expect from Eric Powell. But as the story progresses, it gets darker and darker. The final issue is very hard to read because it's... It's basically 22 pages of brutal torture. And Eric Powell is a very good artist, and he's very good at conveying the physical pain and rage of these characters, so it was tough for me. You know, the, the final issue, I was squirming. I was like, oh my god, I don't want to see this. I still want to see this. You're... I disagree. <laughs> okay, okay. No, okay, so... Admittedly, this could be down to interpretation. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But I read this, and to me, it comes off like Eric Powell taking the Mark Miller approach, which is basically, I'm going to be outlandish just for the hell of it. The protagonist has no name, right? He's just generic. The big man. Big man, yes. whatever. Like, he doesn't have a proper name. He's just going around being this killing machine. And I was reading it, and when I got to the end, I realized... If you were to take this and map it onto something like Kill Bill, right? What's missing here is the scene where, you remember in the first Kill Bill, she lets the last kid go? Like, go home to your mother, right? Mercy. There is no mercy. No mercy. No humanity. None of that. The only moments in this story where you see anything that is even remotely close to... Something deeper than the kind of generic rage you would need in order to go on a rampage is the father and the character of the nurse who sort of shelters him momentarily, even though you find out that she's senile. And the well, no, he has, he has his short-time lover, the black lady with the afro. Right, but she's not named either, and, and there's this ta- No, the, and there's this flashback during the Vietnam War where he's saving a woman who's about to be raped by GIs, by American GIs. Right. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. So there's, I think there's sort of... There, there are no, there's, of there's only rage, but the rage is pointed towards very specific targets. It's like, he hates everybody who preys on anybody he considers as weak. So mm-hmm. he doesn't so much as has sympathy for weaker people. He just really hates the... St- 
people who consider themselves strong. Sure, and he expresses that by punching a guy in the crotch while naked and oh. beating him to death with a lead pipe. Yes. And reading it, it was just like, it was one cliche after another. You know what I mean? Like, the whole, Powell draws out the revelation of the letter. Mm-hmm. Like, this, all his entire motivation for everything that happens is that he receives a letter from a childhood friend. Mm-hmm. You don't even know that it's from the childhood friend at first because, you know, it's just this letter that changed his life and it got him out of his funk and I was going around killing everyone. And at first you think that it has something to do with his sister because he has a sister. Yes. No, she completely disappears from the story, right? Never turns up again. You never hear anybody say anything about what's going on. No, no, no. It ends up being this childhood friend that he had and something happened. Well, it didn't even... Like, this is the level of weirdness that's going on here. You have these cartoon villains, and they are cartoon villains, right? Like, the people that, the people that Big Man, you know, the people that he's hunting down are... Corruptics. One-dimensional, if that, right? Like, where do you find any kind of... In Southern Bastards. That'll do it, actually. (laughs) I like Southern Bastards. But, I mean, in this particular case, right, like, they... Their first reaction to seeing him is to string him up by his feet and set him on fire. Well, he did kill one of their friends. It's it's a proper reaction from yes, their point of view. But like, th- there's no redeeming qualities. There's nothing. So okay, they're cartoonish villains, and then you get to the end, right? And the whole the end is supposed to reveal like his motivation. Like what what has he been going on this really really extreme violent rage for? Because. His friend, Mary, the sheriff's deputy, yes, walked in on something horrific that had nothing to do with her, or had with... nothing to do with Big Man, had nothing to do with like just some some random act of cruelty that she witnesses, and that affects her in a specific way, and then it goes back to him, right? <sighs> well, no, there is the, there I... is a per- hey, there is a personal note because. Uh, you have the final panel. If, right. Uh, the newspaper no, page. Of, even before the final panel, you know what happens, right? Yeah, like, it's he, very clear. The, the sheriff killed her and covered it up. No. Yes, local sheriff's wife dies in apparent suicide. We led to believe, let's, obviously. Let's just spoil the ending, then. Well, yeah, we're talking no, because I, we're talking about this. The sheriff killed her and covered it up. I completely disagree because oh, so this is apparently like an ambiguity in the story because when he is telling, like, you know, what you did to her, the impression that I got is, you know, she witnessed her husband doing, doing horrible, horrible, horrible things, horrible and things. she killed herself. Well, it could be both. Anyway, from his it point of view... It doesn't even matter from Yeah, from his point of view, he, you know, the sheriff is responsible for the death of right. this woman Either he liked. See, I, I disagree. I don't super love this, because, like I said, it gets really tough reading it towards the end um. for, for me. But it didn't even bother me at that point because it was so like it's car- it's just really? like cartoon violence. Because yeah. for me, it it's was very gory. Mm-hmm. But it's the sort of thing that Mark Miller. It's like it's gore that is designed no, to shock. I, now here's it's the very carefully constructed. I, I, because I disagree. I think it comes I, for me. The feeling that I get from it, it comes from a real place of anger. The anger it represents. Because with Mark Miller, like I said, it's calculated. It's cynical. Eric Powell. I just don't read castration his wo- everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. They're yeah, but, everybody gets but it's not. But it's done from real hate. Hate and the the way that the left issue is built, 
with all the pages are stained, literally stained by blood. Mm. But it's a very good artistic touch. Yeah, no, the um, art here is very visceral and it's very good. I don't think that that's like that's a problem per se. I just have like if this were coming from a place of real hatred, right? If this was like if this you're basically saying like this is like the crow. Where it's like oh, the, the writer is working through something and he's expressing it in this way. Whereas for Mark Miller, it's all about titillation. Yes. I don't... It's hard for me to agree with that here because, you know, you get to the end. Big Man hasn't changed, right? Like, nope. No. He, he, he goes to no. this, you know, revenge quest, but it's like, it doesn't change anything for him. I don't think... It the, has nothing to I do don't with think, him at all. I don't think The Crow is the proper po- uh, comparison. I'm thinking about Garth Ennis' Punisher, Max. The, you know, is unrated, dark, right. R-rated version of The Punisher, which was similarly filled with scenes of brutal torture, and The Punisher didn't have an arc. He couldn't have an arc because the whole point was, here was this guy who was a machine of murder, mm. who was at this point, only alive to hurt people he decided needed to be hurt. And Big Man works on the same thing, only he's a dwarf. So we have the extra dimension of he's from society's point, especially this is in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And the lower on, you know, people mocking him on the street, on the bar, like, hey, would you like some chocolate milk? Yeah. Instead of proper beer, and everybody's making fun of him, so there isn't even the veil of political correctness defending him from society's abuses. Mm-hmm. And so I read it as this. This is a guy who, you know, everybody was basically beating up on fr- throughout his whole life, finally deciding to lash out properly. And for me, that's real. But I feel like that might have been accomplished better if the people that he were hunting down were not so ridiculous. I mean, really, like, when you think of the most, the flattest, most cliche version of Eve, like the mundane evil, right? I so that's think, pretty much this. Well, like the I think corrupt hick who's a racist. Yes, but 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 uh, it works for me because these people exist. Sure. Even, even you can read it today. People like this exist today in southern in the southern USA. Absolutely. The, the type of people who would defend the Confederate flag and say, "Well, we have the right to do whatever we want because we are who we are." And in the 1970s, it was there even more. So for me, it's not unrealistic. It's, you know, the torture and the fact that people actually live for more than two pages of this stuff <laughs> is over the top, but it's yeah. necessary. Why is it necessary? From the character's point? From the story's point. Because he has to show the suffering. It's a story about a guy who's dealing out death. It's a story about a guy who's dealing out death. Not just death, but punishment. Well, that's the thing. His he, point he's about... inflicting specific punishment on specific people who committed a very, very specific act that had consequences. Whether the sheriff killed his wife or she killed herself, mm. it doesn't even matter in that context, right? Like, he is avenging his best friend. Yes. Okay. So, what is there beyond that? Like, having... Because I'm thinking here, like, it, it, the, the kind of over-the-top massacring hundreds of thousands of people. Well, he's only killing, like, a dozen people throughout the whole series. Just a dozen. No big. Uh, (laughs) It's like, because it reads like one of those, you know, a man's got to do what a man's got to do things. Like, this is something Chuck Norris could have done. It is. Well, because it it reads like that sort of thing where it's like, you know, 
these people are corrupt and they have to be completely destroyed and they have to be it's not enough to kill them you have to torture them right? yes he uh big man scalps one of his victims, victims right so does uh the bride and kill bill yes so it's like but the difference is like look at what happens to the bride at the end of the story she's in a different place right you can have this sort of expression of rage and and you know these violent revenge fantasies and act out on them and, and do all of this but then it's like okay when you get to the end of the story what do you have like he walks away he puts a really really weird message on the wall the, com- the comedy is finished in latin yes. <laughs> like, okay i wonder the shirt no. design where did eric paul find that the odd clown hanging shirt that seems like the sort of thing he could come up with. Well, yeah. I would not be surprised if he came up with that. Um, I think if it would have been a longer series for like an eight-issue series... Oh, then, God. <laughs> no, that would have been over the top. Four issues, I think it's the right length for this type of story. Now, again, it, it comes to our very different taste of what you and I like, because we've talked before, I really like those things that are just expressive yeah. for the sake of being expressive and just showing up a certain mood for four issues. One of my favorite series of all time is The Shaolin Cowboy, after all, which is four issues of one guy chopping us zombies with even less plot than this. Right. There, and Well, no, there is a plot here. Like, well, I yeah, yeah, but I'm that. saying the plot is simple and is used to illustrate a certain mood or emotion, in this case, again, rage and hate. Yeah. Which, okay, I, I totally realize why for some people this is completely unsatisfying. Yeah. For me, it's what I want. Again, four issues, more than enough. I don't need to see more of this. Uh, and just for the art. Because, again, so. Eric Powell's art is no, great. No, the art is fantastic. It, because the guy started out good, and he's just keep building up and building up. And the fact that I, I squeamed from reading this is a high point for this series. Because usually when I read this stuff, you know, when I read Avatar's uh, House of Horrors or whatever, <laughs> Frost, I just don't care. I'm like, yeah, somebody's getting his entrails ripped off, oh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. Here, I cared. I felt the pain. So that says something about how the art works. But you didn't feel that, like, by the end of the fourth issue, it was just like, oh, get over, get to the point already. Like, yes, we, we know. Because it's not, you know, if, for example, he had saved the direct violence like towards the people because that it's not true that he only saves it for those people he beats the guy like the the boyfriend of the woman that he's sleeping with right yes beats him to a pulp you have the all of those flashbacks in vietnam right which again are as visceral and as in your face as everything that he does to the sheriff and his partners right all of that so it's like when the violence is everywhere like mm-hmm. when when it's in all four issues in equal amounts because like the, the supposedly the idea is that at the end of the story he does the worst possible thing to the person who is most directly responsible and you're saying by issue two you already seen it by issue two he had already like slaughtered his, his entire squad and castrated them and mutilated them like and done every horrible thing deservedly so because you know there, there were about to Rapist. do something unthinkable. Like, they were about to cross that line. But when you... So, for him, it's like, it's just another Monday for him. There's no, you know... Where is the escalation? How can you have an escalation? When, like, in the first issue, 
he's there butt naked, right? Full frontal nudity with a lead pipe, beating a guy into paste for sleeping with the guy's girlfriend. Like, you're not in the moral high ground here, you know? And it, it just, like, the art is phenomenal, but I feel like by the time you get to issue four, and it should be the climax, you're already, like... I've already seen him do this exact thing, so it's not that revolutionary, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, but, it's know. one of those agree to disagree, I'm yeah. afraid. I mean, I will say the art is fantastic. Um, reader, beware, like, this stuff is violent. Now, this is your first Eric Paul experience. It is. I keep meaning to get around to the goon. And yes, so after this, would you still try and read the goon, or did this put you off Eric Paul? To answer that question, I would need to know whether this is typical of Eric Powell or not. This is an extremer version. The okay. Goon is more, even in its gloomier moments, and the Goon has some very gloomy moments, it was never this, again, outright hatred right. and rage and blood and guts. Th that's why, like, my opinion of this would not necessarily... I will get to the Goon someday. <laughs> I have a very, very large background. Yes, yes, we but all do. I, I will get to the Goon someday, but I don't think that this would affect my opinion, because, again, like... Reading this, it was like, Powell knows what he's doing with every page. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind, that's why I call it the Mark Miller approach. It's like, you know, you're practically doing a formula at this point. You know, it's like, you, he knows exactly what'll happen when he cuts away from, you know, big man with a guy. And then when you come back, he looks like something out of Hellraiser. <laughs> you know, like Clive Barker could have looked at this and been like, oh my God. So, yeah, it's like when it's calculated like that, I'm not a fan. But on the other hand, I don't think that this would stop me from reading The Goon. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like, from everything I've heard about it, The Goon is more something that he's doing not just to, to like, get in your face. You know, The Goon is a proper story, to some extent or other. I, I, I yes, don't, I don't it is. That's true. So I, I would take a look at that then. But oh. this is just sort of like, it's, it's like empty calories for me. Like, I, I, I could see what he was doing from the moment he said I got a letter. I'm like, okay, either something happened to the sister or something happened to the best friend. Rape will probably be involved, and I'll give Eric Powell credit for, you know, rape was involved, but not in the way that you think it is. And then, so that's why he's doing all of this. The end. Okay. And I'm like, if, if he had a, if he had died, if he had sacrificed himself, if 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 he had done like, because the story literally ends with him getting his revenge, and I feel like maybe if there had been at least one more page to tell me, so what now? What happens to him? Like, what is the next step after achieving his mission? Right? What comes next? No, because the story because that would be beyond violent revenge fantasy. And that's not part of the story. So, no thank you. Sometimes revenge is enough. Yes. Shall we, shall we finish? Yes. Okay, so this was the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Adrian. Until next time. Bon appetit.